Hello and happy end of January, my loves. As the month draws to a close, I find that I couldn't stay out of the lab and all of the tantalizing curiosities that science has to offer. Of course, as I've covered in past episodes, medical advancements and history, as well as what we can continually learn about technology and the world around us, never ceases to amaze. However, when research and the tangled world of all things nightmarish collide, well, I am in paradise. So allow me to regale you this week in that special place where science and the unexplained are one, specifically in the realm of those sunshy, gothtastic fashion icons with coffin beds and a taste for blood. Welcome. I'm Rocket Fox. And that chewing sound is my partner in the studio for today, Hige, my grumpy old man, Shiba Inu. Join us as we embrace the strain. off this week, I didn't want to hold back, to pull any punches, so I decided to start with something truly terrifying. Numbers. Ugh. And not just numbers, oh no, math. Those of you with me last week for the episode about resting in pieces may recall how these little devils were once the apples of Galileo's eye. However, that doesn't make the concept any less frightening. You may be saying right about now, Rocket, what's so horrifying about math? And what does that have to do with one of the most beloved horror icons? To which, allow me to offer the following. Firstly, numbers that may or may not exist? Sheer ghostly. But even beyond that, there are many instances of horror that deal extensively in numbers, or, more precisely, the exchange in how the number of those that threaten us exponentially increase as the number of humanity dwindles. You see it with zombies, and yes, our topic tonight, the vampire. Books and film have been based off of the idea of a hostile, bloodsucker, all due respect, takeover in several forms. But it was just last year that a scientist sunk his own fangs into the numbers to really get a sense of what that sort of spread might just look like. Now, predicting the spread of an outbreak of any kind isn't new, as pretty much anyone listening to this within memory shot of 2020 might guess. Hello, future, if you're out there. And there are models that have been used in the past. However, we are a rapidly changing people with the trends in technology, social behaviors, and forces at play that can dramatically influence how populations behave. So, while understanding the spread of the Black Plague is interesting, 
It's not necessarily the most helpful when it comes to predicting and planning for the future of disease scenarios. Bring it up to date. That is where modeling and simulation comes in. By utilizing the tangible data from previous social behaviors and outbreaks, a model, which is a representation of the real world using mathematical equations, is run through a simulation multiple times by a computer to reproduce various case outcomes. Of course, the more recent the outbreak data, the more useful the practice is going to be. But overall, this is a method that provides important insights when it comes to creating response policies, informing the public, reducing casualties, and so on. How is this relevant to our night-dwelling friends with fangs, you might wonder? Well, in many ways, a vampire outbreak, or zombie apocalypse for that matter, isn't unlike an outbreak of other diseases when it comes to just the numbers. But what really got physicist Dominic Chernia of the Institute of Nuclear Physics in Krakow's mental motor going was seeing the following academic paper, and I for one can't blame him, Mathematical Models of Interactions Between Species. Peaceful Coexistence of Vampires and Humans, based on the models derived from fiction, literature, and films, by Wadim Stryalkowski, Evgenie Leeson, and Emily Wilkins. I have linked the paper itself in the show notes, and while a lot of the equations weren't really within my wheelhouse, applied mathematical sciences was never my strongest suit, unfortunately, I want to read you a little something from it. <clears throat> Our paper presents a new approach to mathematical modeling of intertemporal interactions between species based on differential equations. It employs the example of interactions between vampires and humans using several types of vampire behavior described in popular fiction literature, comic books, films, and TV series. Although mathematical modeling enables us to reject most of the popular scenarios embedded in popular literature and films, it appears that several popular culture sources outline the models describing plausible and peaceful vampire and human coexistence. Keywords, intertemporal interactions, predator-prey models, Differential Equations, Vampires, Coexistence of Species. Basically, the paper uses math and the predator-prey game theory model to see what would happen to the human population with different styles of vampires. A bunch of Draculas versus Lestats versus Spikes, and so forth. While, again, I'm not known for reading a lot of academic papers for funsies, this is definitely one that I did read through and I am going to be coming back to, and one that our physicist I mentioned before, Dominic Chernia, likely did as well. The equations and charts were one thing, but Chernia wanted to build a calculator to test the models of the paper and see what the outcomes would look like. The result? 
After a month of hard work, behold, the Vampire Apocalypse Calculator that you too can play with. Where you hold the keys to the type of vampire running rampant through the world, whether they are smart, whether there are any vampire slayers, and how quickly they will recruit, if at all, uh, personally, I would recommend a yes on that, it is a very cool tool that I would definitely recommend playing with, as always, linked in the show notes, and one that I think definitely makes math a possible friend instead of foe. Possibly. If nothing else, it at least lets you be in charge of how humanity is taken out by our vampire overlords. Aside from the number game of statistics and stalking us in the night, vampires are most known for that constant craving. The titular standout in their diet that makes most among us squirm. Blood. Now, while there are literary, film, and video game instances of vampires overcoming their desire for human blood in order to take the ethically high road, well, at least by human standards, and sustaining themselves on the blood of cows or some other creature. I'm not sure how ethical the cows would find it, but I digress. And also, aside from the fact that there are those who in modern days make claims of vampirism and do partake of blood from consensual donors and partners, I did find myself wondering, a complete blood-only diet? A blooditarian, so to speak? How poorly would that go? Really? Aside from the relatively quick onset of flavor and texture fatigue, I was curious about the ins and outs of, uh, well, blood drinking. And while I would assume that one cannot live on blood alone, I wanted to know why. Aside from my gut reaction of, oh, no. The first thing I think is important to really set as a baseline is what are the fundamental human dietary needs? If I was an alien who went to an Earth-themed pet shop, what would I need to get to keep one alive? People are capable of having an incredible range of diets, and there are certainly things that help us to thrive and our bodies and minds to function their best that start at our mouths. However, to answer the question of living on blood, I think that already cuts down on the idea of our bodies and minds thriving from nutritional intake, simply because humans don't thrive nor survive from any single nutritional source. Curious to follow this thread a little further, I found an article from BBC.com that asked the question of what single food would keep you alive the longest. It seemed that potatoes were actually a pretty good candidate, regular along with sweet potatoes. 
which contains surprisingly high amounts of protein and an array of amino acids as well as vitamins A and E, iron, and calcium. The problem comes from the lack of B, zinc, and other minerals, and fat, as well as a phenomenon called sensory-specific satiety, which evidently is a natural phenomenon in which the more you eat of a certain item, the less you can stomach it. And considering how many potatoes you would need to eat in order to meet your dietary requirements, already that's starting off on a bad foot. That being said, I found the essential nutrients people need to consume daily to maintain optimal health, according to Medical News Today. The first is vitamins, which boost the immune system, prevent or delay cancers, strengthen teeth and bones, maintain healthy skin, aid brain and nervous system function, support healthy blood, help the body metabolize proteins and carbs, and so on. Next are minerals, which balance water levels, maintain healthy skin, hair, and nails, and improve bone health. But those honestly sound a bit like a body luxury, a two-food diet, if you will, so perhaps not quite as necessary? Next up is protein, which ensure the growth and development of muscles, bone, hair, and skin, form antibodies, hormones, and such, and serve as fuel. That seems important. Then fat, that deals in cell growth, muscle movement, brain function, building new cells, all relatively important. So those seem to be the things that we would absolutely need from our blood-only diet. And going back to that, blood is about 700 calories per liter. So for the average adult, one would need about three liters a day to maintain base level calorie intake. When dried, it turns out to be about 93% protein and 1% carb, which definitely seems good for those gains. However, it is excruciatingly low on vitamins and minerals. For example, there is only about 5 milligrams of vitamin C per liter, so you would need to drink 9 liters to get the World Health Organization's recommended 45 milligrams per day, which is a hefty 6,300 calories. And that's just for one vitamin, uh, never mind the fat or minerals. Which, again, minerals may be a two-food diet, but I digress. There has been the suggestion of an overload of iron, the one thing that blood is definitely rich in, which could lead to a condition known as hemochromatitis, Essentially, iron overload that can damage the liver, joints, heart, and even cause death. However, it would seem that one would need to drink 26 liters to really overdose on iron. That being said, a surprising nutritional threat is actually salt. It turns out that human blood contains about 900 milligrams of salt per liter, which, assuming you are intaking those 3 liters per day to meet a healthy caloric intake would definitely be over what the recommended daily amount is, especially if you weren't also drinking a big side of water along with that blood. So at the end of the day, it's probably not a good idea in the same way that sustaining on any one item would be, not only for nutritional reasons, but also because blood can many times be a carrier for diseases that you likely 
wouldn't want any part of. Again, taking into consideration that there do exist those out there who've claimed that drinking blood in small quantities from trusted sources have helped them. However, that's a far cry from living on blood and blood alone. Of course, this is all based on human dietary needs, which vampires are not. The next closest thing we have to look at are vampire bats, which, luckily for us, scientists have also peeked at to answer these same questions of how do they survive off of such a seemingly nutrient-scarce food source. According to a study out of the University of Copenhagen, the secret to the bat's success lies in their gut, along with an anticoagulant enzyme in their saliva to keep that fountain flowing. A protein lovingly named Draculin, which actually is being investigated as a treatment for those who have suffered strokes. The study lead, Marie Lissandra Cepeda Mendoza, compared the gut DNA of vampire bats to other fruit, insect, and meat-eating bats to learn that the little vampires had evolved a few adaptations, such as assisting in metabolizing and digesting the blood protein, a shift in kidney function to help deal with such a high-protein diet, and, which personally I thought was the coolest, a high level of resistance to bloodborne viruses that works by inserting copies of their own genetic material onto the host's genome. Mind blown. All of which makes our human-shaped vampire all the more badass internally, I think. The one thing I learned that makes them all the more terrifying is the other fact I found about their smaller flying cousins, which is how dire their need for a constant blood supply is. For if the bats were to miss just two meals in a row, they would starve. And that adds a level of predatory desperation that I think makes the whole idea just a little, if not a lot, more unsettling. The last taste of strange I have for you this week is about those pearly whites. One of the hallmarks of a vampire is those glorious, feline-esque fangs that so delicately and dangerously adorn our vampire's smile. Since, for all purposes of this episode, these creatures fundamentally resemble humans in other manners, I was curious how might these canines affect us? My first question about sporting a new dental set actually came down to, in my mind, the most obvious one. How often do people accidentally bite themselves, and how might that be impacted by the presence of fangs? Most often, the accidental biting of oneself transpires when chewing. I've yet to accidentally bite my arm when I'm talking to someone. Which makes sense, though, because it's when the mouth is in biting action, and when you really think about it, there's a lot that comes into play. The tongue moving food into the right place, the jaw maneuvering the teeth into the right grind pattern, the throat swallowing at the right pace, 
all without you really consciously thinking on it. It's complicated enough that in 2014, researchers at Duke University mapped mice brain circuitry to develop an image of their chewing control centers in order to better understand how the brain, well, does it all. Through the use of genetically disabled and fluorescently labeled rabies viruses, the senior study author Fan Wang, associate professor of neurobiology and member of Duke Institute for Brain Sciences, found that there are at least 12 muscles that actively play a role in the acts of chewing, drinking, and speaking. While for my own experiences, I've never bitten myself with a canine, I've also never had a natural fang, so that seems like a pretty complicated scenario to suddenly throw fundamentally a weapon into. Taking into consideration, vampires use them to attack their prey. Plus, if we were to liken their fangs to their closest relative, going back to our friend the vampire bat, the fangs would possess the fascinating detail of a lack of enamel, which helps keep them razor sharp. These bat teeth are so sharp, in fact, that they produce wounds that are 7 millimeters wide and 8 millimeters deep. And, just by handling the skulls in the museums, they can cause these deep and severe cuts. Add to that, the average strength of a human bite is 162 pounds per square inch. It is nothing to scoff at. There is also the additional factor of language. Teeth definitely impact how we speak, the airflow, the way we are able to shape our lips, and so forth. While I was not able to find any definitive articles referring to fangs and language, an interesting thread on the world-building subreddit that did point out parrots are able to mimic human speech without any teeth at all, I think it's at least something to take into consideration. At the end of the day, as much as I love the idea and aesthetic of fangs, I'm a little too cavalier in my chewing, and I like my tongue in one piece. Although, when you find out that it seems modern human canines were actually used more in the way that primates use theirs, males biting it out for mates, fangs could at least make the dating scene a lot more interesting. <laughs> so much for joining me for this week's Piece of Strange. This week's bonus story takes us back to blood and how researchers just a few years ago put some science behind young blood and turning back the hands of time on age. To find out more, check out www.patreon.com slash rocketfox. As for me, Come visit for a spell at fantasticallystrange.com and on Instagram at fantasticallystrange and Twitter at fantasticoddpod. As always, thank you so, so much for your support. 
If you're enjoying the show so far, please let me know, maybe even a follow, share, or review. And for anyone who listened to last week's episode, I am more than happy and thrilled to be able to share any reviews or anything like that as well. I do write, research, edit, and do all of the things myself, and am ridiculously honored to be able to bring you stories about topics I'm passionate about. And your ear means the world to me. If you do have any topics you'd like to see, any questions, comments, or just to say hi, email me at fantasticallystrange at rocketfox.com. All sources are linked and credited in the show info. The amazing logo illustration is by Constance Hermit, and the killer intro song, Hey Dorothy, is by Cruise Machine. Thank you so, so much again. Please take care of yourself, and I cannot wait to see you next time. Mm-hmm.